Welcome to the Liberty Baptist Sermon Archives. The message you're about to hear was preached at Liberty Baptist Church in Easton, Massachusetts. You can find out more about us or contact us at mylibertybaptist.org or just look us up on Facebook. And now we hope that this message from God's Word will be a blessing to you. Please turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter number 13 this evening. Some of you will remember the old commercial that said this, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Do you remember that? A mind is a terrible thing to waste. And the thought behind that is basically this, it's a waste when there's potential to do great things, but that potential isn't realized. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. Potential is a wonderful thing in a lot of ways. Every year, the NFL has a draft. Now, the other sports do too, but it seems like the NFL is the one that people uh, pay attention to the most, uh, where teams look forward to a class of draft picks, and it's probably the only time where every NFL team's fan base is happy during the NFL draft, because even if your year was bad, even if the season before was bad, uh, there's now hope because you have a crop, a class of draft picks that are going to come to your team and hopefully make an impact for the next year. There's a team that just picked a starting quarterback that is going to maybe just change the direction of that uh, organization. Or it could be uh, that they were needing some wide receiver help and they selected a couple of wide receivers that really could make an impact. They, and, and everyone in that draft has all the potential in the world. But then something happens. Well, they start playing games. And all of a sudden, some of those draft picks end up far exceeding what people thought they would be able to do, for instance, a uh, Tom Brady or, for instance, uh, an Aaron Rodgers that far exceed those expectations that others have of them. But there's also a large class of picks that were supposed to do a lot of things and didn't do anything. And there's a term for that in the NFL, and it's a term we use maybe in other parts of life as well, and it's this, they were a bust. They were a bust. Uh, they should have had a great career. They should have been able to change an organization. They should have been game changers in many different ways, but they didn't realize the potential that was inside of them for whatever reason. And because of that, they'll be labeled, sure, an NFL player for the rest of their lives because they did have a cup of coffee uh, in the National Football League. But in the end, they'll always be remembered as a NFL bust. They didn't live up to the potential that they were touted to have. You know, one of the things that each of us, or it's uh, hard for me to swallow as a pastor sometimes, is knowing this, that God has given each of us talents and gifts. But yet, with all the potential that can be found within a church building at any given time, with all the potential that can be found in a believer, there are some that truly never live up to the potential of what God has called them to be. Uh, there are some uh, who are mediocre, they're lackluster, they're lukewarm Christians, and that was never God's design. That was never God's plan for them. In fact, God gifted them to be much more than a lukewarm, mediocre Christian. Uh, so much so uh, that we would put it this way, that God gave them the greatest start possible when he gave them his Holy Spirit to live inside of them to be able to do uh, that which seemingly was impossible for them before they got saved. But yet, despite all that potential, nothing much really happened. And because of that, could we put it this way? Spiritually, they were a bust. That was never God's plan. That was never God's design. In fact, God helped them and enabled them to be much more than that. 
it's hard as a pastor to watch, knowing that there are some that could do great things for God, but yet are just mired in mediocrity. I, I was given this quote this afternoon, and unwittingly, it fit along very well with what I was preaching here tonight, so I'm just going to read this text from my phone. This is from Charles Spurgeon. He said this, Why is it that some Christians, although they hear many sermons, make but slow advances in the divine life because they neglect their closets and do not thoughtfully meditate on God's word? They love the wheat, but they do not grind it. They would have the corn, but they will not go forth into the fields and gather it. The fruit hangs upon the tree, but they will not pluck it. The water flows at their feet, but they will not stoop to drink it. From such folly deliver us, O Lord. It's a great thought, knowing that there are those uh, who have the desire, the potential to do great things for God, but yet because it does require some level of work and it does require some level uh, of self-denial because of that, they never unlock the potential of what God called them to be. Friends, we speak this evening of Samson. Now, we understand that this could be said of us tonight, but I first want to look at Samson here in the Word of God. Now, we have to be careful in how we present Samson. I'll be honest with you, even in preaching it, I want to be careful in how I present Samson to you here tonight and over the next few weeks because Samson wasn't all bad. In fact, Samson, in many ways, was a man of faith. And I know that because Hebrews 11 tells us he was a man of faith. There's no doubt about that. Over the 20-year judgeship that he had, he had trust and faith in God that allowed God to use him in amazing ways. But could we put it this way tonight? God desired much more out of Samson than what Samson delivered. God granted Samson such great ability that in many ways he squandered these great gifts that God gave him. And I want to look at this here tonight, but I also want to draw some conclusions to help us not be mired in mediocrity, to to not just have potential to serve God, but then just sit around as uh, nothing more than uh, uh, divine lumps, just kind of waiting for heaven to come along, that God has created us and God has enabled us to be much more for him, but there's some things that get in the way of our God-given potential. Would you stand please for the reading of God's word? We're gonna read in Judges chapter 13, beginning in verse number 24. And I don't wanna scare you, I'm not getting wild on you tonight, but once we get to the end of the chapter, we're gonna keep reading, okay? So don't, don't get scared on me, all right? We're allowed to read more than one chapter at a time, okay? It says this in Judges 13, 24, and the woman bare a son, and of course that is the unnamed mother of Samson, Manoah's wife, And the woman bare a son and called his name Samson, and the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move him at times in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshetol. And Samson went down to Timnath and saw a woman in Timnath of the daughter of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and his mother and said, I have seen a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, get her for me to wife. Then his father and his mother said unto him, Is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren, or among all thy people, that thou goest to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said unto his father, Get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. Now mark that phrase right there because it's important. For she pleaseth me well. But his father and his mother knew not that it was of the Lord, and that he sought an occasion against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. I just want to say here for a moment, this does not mean that God approved what Samson was doing, but it does mean that God is big enough to take our mistakes 
and to be able to use them to further his program and his glory. So let's just make sure we're clear about that. Verse number five, then went Samson down and his father and his mother to Timnath and came to the vineyards of Timnath and behold, a young lion roared against him and the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him and he rent him as he would have rent a kid. And he had nothing in his hand, but he told not his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman. And there's this phrase again, she pleased Samson well. And after a time, he returned to take her and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees and honey in the carcass of the lion. And he took therefore thereof in his hands and went on eating and came to his father and mother and he gave them and they did eat. And he told them not that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. You may be seated. Kaylee, will you in a moment just get me another bottle of water, please? Thank you for that. Well, it may seem strange for us to just read from one chapter into another this evening. I believe reading from chapter 13 into chapter 14 gives us a contrast uh, to see two different portions of Samson's life that I think are important for us to look at. And the first tonight, if you're writing this down, is this. I see, number one, Samson's great potential. I see Samson's great potential. That's represented there in really all of chapter number 13, but particularly in chapter, or verses number 24 and 25 after the birth of Samson. And it says, And the woman bare a son and called his name Samson. Thank you. And the, and the child grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to move him at times in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshetal. We could put it this way tonight. Samson was born in a spiritual, with a spiritual spoon in his mouth. Samson was born with great advantage and great privilege. Some of us would say this evening, wow, I wish that I had had the head start spiritually in life that Samson had. Maybe you didn't grow up in a Christian home. You didn't grow up in a Christian environment or you didn't have loving parents or maybe it wasn't that you found Jesus Christ until later in your life. Here is a man who had godly parents. He didn't just have uh, uh, parents... Uh, that knew of God, they were godly parents who were interested in raising him in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He had the blessings of God upon him in his life. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, the end of verse number 24, it says, and the Lord blessed him. I mean, that's pretty simple right there. It doesn't take a real theologian to realize that God was blessing him because God's word says that God was blessing him. And beyond that, it said that he had the spirit of God move upon him in verse number 25. And this is important to us because you'll remember that the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament before Jesus Christ died, was buried and resurrected is different than it is now. Now we understand that the Holy Spirit indwells the believer. Uh, you'll find that, that the Bible is full in the epistles of uh, references to the fact that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. He's the earnest of our inheritance, the literal down payment of heaven that lives inside of us. But that was not the case in the Old Testament. And Jesus alluded to this in John uh, when he's talking to the disciples before he goes to the cross. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would move at certain times and certain seasons, come upon a man or a woman, and then uh, depart in the same manner. Uh, we see that in the life of Samson. We're going to see it near the end of Samson's life. One of the great examples of this is Saul. You'll remember that there were times that Saul had the Spirit of the Lord move upon him and he did great things for God, but there were also times that he disobeyed God and because of that, the Spirit of the Lord departed from him and then he was bothered and then it was the Spirit of Satan who then moved upon him and it was David who played the harp that brought peace and calm to his heart. And so we can put it this way. Sometimes we take for granted the fact that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. I would have to imagine an Old Testament believer would not have that same uh, type of interaction because it was not a given that you would have uh, the Holy Spirit come upon you like it is for us when we get saved. It's a guarantee for you 
that when you get saved, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. If you say, well, pastor, the Holy Spirit doesn't live inside of me, my answer to that is, well, you ain't saved because that's what the Bible says. But in the Old Testament, that wasn't the case. So he has this great privilege. He has this great potential, godly parents, blessings of God upon him, and the Spirit of God uh, began to move upon him. And that Spirit would continue to work in him all throughout his ministry for 20 years. The reason I know is, boy, spoiler alert, uh, Delilah is going to end up cutting his hair. Who is she? You'll find out in a couple months. Uh, she cuts his hair, and the Bible says that when she cut his hair and he woke up, he didn't understand that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him. And so that gives us a little bit of an understanding of how the ministry of the Holy Spirit would have worked at that time. You know, Samson reminds us of many Bible characters. And again, I'm always careful how I use that term character because we're talking about real people. But he's reminiscent of many Bible characters who had great potential to serve God. I think of Nadab and Abihu, uh, who grew up with Aaron as a father and Moses as an uncle. Uh, Aaron, the first high priest of Israel, and Moses, well, Moses, the leader of Israel out of Egypt. Nadab and Abihu would have grown up in a home with great potential. I just mentioned Saul. Saul was the very first king of Israel. And on top of that, he had Samuel as his minister and Samuel as his priest and Samuel as his prophet. I mean, what potential Saul had when the whole of Israel selected him. Of course, the Lord selected him, but they were so excited about coronating him and saying, God save the king. He had every advantage possible, Saul did. I think of Demas in the New Testament who traveled with Paul. Uh, he would have been one of the traveling companions of Paul. How would you like to literally sit at the feet of Paul and learn of Jesus Christ, who I believe sat at the feet of Jesus Christ in heavenly places for three years? I mean, can you imagine what great advantage that would be for you that far exceeds any Bible college, that far exceeds any seminary to literally sit at the feet of the Apostle Paul and around the campfire at night, learn more about Jesus Christ. That'd be an amazing thing. Uh, you want to talk about advantage, how about Judas? who literally walked with maybe the only thing better of sitting around for three years uh, or four years with Paul would have been for sitting around three years with Jesus Christ and being able to see the miracles and to be able to see the compassion and be able to uh, see things that you can't explain uh, with what you have seen with your natural eyes and, and what you're hearing with your ears and to be around that all the time. But each and every one of those people that I gave you were people with potential that didn't realize their potential. Nadab and Abihu went into the tabernacle of the Lord and offered what the Bible called strange fire. Whatever it was, they offered something that they knew they ought not to offer. God killed them for it. Saul, we understand, went slowly into madness, and he ended up persecuting David and persecuting anyone who was aligned with David. He thought everyone was against him. He uh, consorted with a witch near the end of his life to try to hear from God uh, because he couldn't hear from God himself anymore. Uh, the man dissolved into madness and at the end of his life killed himself on the battlefield uh, because he thought the Philistines were going to slay him. No, he was a man with great potential, but a man who didn't realize that potential. At the end of 2 Timothy, uh, uh, Paul says of Demas, he says, but Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. I'll tell you, one of the saddest verses you'll find in the Bible is that verse about Demas, that Demas literally said to Paul, see you later, because he loved the world more than he loved the ministry of Jesus Christ. What potential, but what a waste. And Judas, we need say no more, but to understand that he had such great advantage to walk with Jesus Christ, but yet the son of perdition died, uh, hanging himself and then uh, getting carried along headlong, the rope breaking and having his literally body burst 
on the rocks below. Uh, his name was a byword to all those in those days, and his name is a byword today so much that nobody wants to call their kid Judas. Uh, all the potential in the world and nothing. In each of these cases, potential doesn't translate into successful service for God. In each of these cases, potential didn't translate into successful service for God. You know what I've seen through the years? I've seen a lot of Christians, like the old saying goes, they blow in, they blow up, and they blow out. They come in. Maybe sometimes they think they're going to teach everybody what Christianity is about, even though they just barely figured it out themselves. And then before you know it, with all the potential in the world, they're gone. The potential being unrealized. I say this not gleefully. I say this with not a hint of sarcasm in my voice. As a pastor, it breaks my heart to think there are some that God has gifted with great potential. Some with one talent, some with five talents, some with ten talents. Remember the parable of the talents? Each gifted differently, but each gifted by God. Listen, I give you a gift. You can like it or you don't have to like it. But when you've been gifted by God, which every single one of us who are saved have been, to use those gifts in service for the Savior, I've seen it happen where people don't realize their potential. I've seen ten talent believers. I mean, I'm talking about some that it's just like they look at something and they can do it for the Lord. They say it, they, they have all this potential, but yet they take these talents and they hide them under a bushel. Some of us would say, boy, if, if I could do that, I, would, I wish I could do that, so I would do it for the Lord, but they hide it under a bushel. I've observed some who have acknowledged a special calling on their life, but then because time makes them afraid or because they grow lukewarm, even though they have the special calling in their life, you know what they do? They start to walk it back. Maybe that wasn't what I was thinking. If that wasn't what I think, for a year and a half, I lived with the fact that I knew God called me to preach, but I didn't want to preach. I knew that's not what I wanted to do. So what did I do? I just kind of mired myself in mediocrity. I wasn't going to realize my potential. I'm not saying that I couldn't have done something else for a living, but I would say this, uh, it, nothing else would have mattered because I knew what God had called me to do. Nothing else would have mattered. I wouldn't have realized my potential. Well, what if you had made a million dollars? Well, I'm not now, but I tell you this, I haven't realized my potential if I made a million dollars and didn't do what God called me to do. There are so many. Now, now, how does this happen? How do people get themselves in this situation? Well, I think that we see from our text tonight this thought. You'll never realize your full potential for God when your personal pleasures trump God's revealed will for your life. You will never realize your full potential for God when your personal pleasures trump the Lord's revealed will. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay, as long as you'll do what I tell me to, you know, I tell you to do. But that's often what Christians with great potential, but nothing realized, will say. So number one, I see Samson's great potential, but number two, I see this, Samson's greater problem. Samson's greater problem. This is where the contrast takes place. Chapter 13 tells us how Samson had all the advantages, but chapter 14 tells us how the advantages start to unravel in his life. Look at all the things that happened just in these nine short verses that we just read. First of all, we see he wanted a wife of the Philistines. Now, why is that a problem? They're called the uncircumcised Philistines. The reason why is because they were a people of that land who did not believe in Jehovah God. I have to mention this almost every time I preach and talk about the intermarriages of the land. And I have to remind people every single time that God was not against interracial 
interracial marriage and God was not against mixed marriage. That was not the point of that. What God was against, and God is still against today, by the way, is having marriages where there are those who are unequally yoked, uh, where there are those who are unbelievers uh, and believers yoking themselves together. I'm not talking about people who get saved and then all of a sudden they're saved and their spouse is not. That's different. You're supposed to stay with your spouse, love on your spouse, and win them to Christ through their love. But, but the understanding is this, is that you as a saved person should not go and willingly find an unsaved person and try to bring them together as one because you have different directions that you're going. And let's be honest, the Jews and the Philistines were going different directions. And so God said this, don't marry together unless there was a Philistine who became part of the household of the Jews by believing in Jesus Christ. You say, oh, that never happened. Well, there's a, just happens to be a few of them in the line of Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, one like a Rahab, the harlot, uh, another like Ruth, uh, who would have uh, been able to say, I am not of the Jewish people, but I realize the God of the Jews is the God of all. And the God of all is now the God of me. That's why Ruth said, under his wings will I come to trust. And that's why she today is in the line of Christ. And Ruth and Boaz, married, uh, would end up having a son. Who would have a son? Uh, who would have a son? Who would have David? But we also understand that the Israelites, in general, were not to marry the Philistines. By the way, Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4 says the reason why. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. Well, pastor, is that really the way that it is? I don't know. Ask Solomon. Because Solomon had 1,000 wives and concubines, many of them uh, turned his heart away from God. Of course, first of all, the problem of having 999 too many wives, uh, but on top of the fact uh, that uh, many of them did not believe in God. And before you know it, Samson, in a bid to make them all happy, because, I mean, imagine if you were one of 1,000, there's a lot of reasons not to be happy, and to a bid to make them happy, he would build temples to their gods to try to appease them. So no, you weren't supposed to intermarry. And so here's what we see here. It says in verse number two, I have seen a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her to me for wife. But that's not the only problem that he was going to intermarry with the Philistines. He also broke his vow. That Nazarite vow uh, that was supposed to be so important uh, that we read in, uh, in last uh, message last week and talked about, although briefly, uh, but he broke his vow. You say, well, how did that happen? Well, it said in verse number five that he was going down uh, through the vineyard and goes and comes into confrontation with a lion and he rips that lion apart like a kid. So uh, just like a harmless little goat, he ripped that lion up like it was nothing. And then went through that same vineyard a few uh, uh, weeks or months later. And as he does so, he looks into the carcass of the lion and sees honey that is a, a honeycomb inside the carcass and says, hey, you know what? That honey looks pretty good. Now, this isn't theological, but I just, I've had this on my mind all week. First of all, that's disgusting. I've been wanting to say that all week, all right? I feel so much better about that. I mean, you're looking inside a carcass. I don't care if it's just bones. I don't care what it is. But I'm not going around looking inside a roadkill saying, I wonder if there's something good in here to eat. I mean, and that's, what, that's literally what he did. And so he looks in the carcass of the lion. He says, uh, wow, there's honey in there. And he dipped his hand into the carcass. I don't care what he thought he touched or what he thought he didn't touch. He's eating carcass honey. And so he takes that honey, he eats it, and he goes to mom and dad and said, hey, here's some honey, I think you're going to like it. And they liked it. He didn't tell them where it came from. Uh, one of the reasons he didn't tell them where it came from was because by reaching into that carcass and scooping out that honey, he broke his Nazarite vow. 
you say, well, I don't see that anywhere in the Nazarite vow, either in Numbers chapter 6 or in Judges chapter 13, where we read last week. Well, here's the issue. Uh, to have a dead carcass would be to have something that was ceremonially unclean. He was told not to touch the things that were unclean. And so the minute that he put his hand into uh, the carcass and pulled out that honey, he has now broken the Nazarite vow. It was a clear violation. So, so how does this happen? How does he take a woman of the Philistines that he knows he's not supposed to have, including the fact that his parents told him, you're not supposed to do this? How does he take of the honey uh, that uh, he looks in there? I mean, it's just honey. I mean, how great could it be to literally break your vow that you have kept all of these years for carcass honey? Why would you do that? Well, I think the answer is right in that verse that I mentioned to you just a few moments ago. I said to mark in your mind, it's in verse number three, and it's in the final words of the verse. It says this, get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. And it's reiterated in verse seven, she pleased Samson well. Why did he not fulfill the potential of what God had called him to do? Because he allowed his personal pleasures to trump what God had called him to do in his life. Because it pleased him well, he was going to do it. It didn't matter what his parents said. It didn't matter what God said. He blew through all the guardrails in his life. And he said, you know, I know what God wants. I know what his way is. But I'll tell you this, I'll have it my own way. Not have thine own way, but I'll have it my own way. And that's what Brother Turner used to call Burger King Christianity. Uh, I'll have it my way. You know, you can go to Burger King and have no pickles and no onions and no lettuce. But when it comes to the word of God, you can't pick and choose. When it comes to God's calling upon your life, uh, we must take it all for who it is, for who he says he is and what he has said it is in the word of God, or we have to leave it behind. It's either all or nothing. You say, that sounds like that's a really... Oh, that, that just sounds like something that, that doesn't make a lot of sense, Pastor. I mean, everything has mistakes, and you kind of, in life, you have to filter through things and pick and choose and understand. And certainly, I understand that's the case. When it's a doctor, you have to do that. When it's a work situation, you have to understand that. Uh, when uh, it's any of those life situations, you have to do that. But when it comes to the Word of God, we don't get to pick and choose. When we allow our personal pleasures and our personal ideas and what pleases us well to trump the Word of God, we do not well in the Christian life. And you will never fulfill your potential when it's all about what you want and what you want to do and what works best for you. And here's Samson, and he blows through all of these guardrails that God's put up. By the way, God put up a lot of guardrails to keep him from trouble in the first place. I just wrote these down. He gave him God-breathed commandments. You know, he had the Word of God. We know at least he had the books of Moses at that time. He obviously didn't have judges. If he had had judges, he could have read about what was coming up and said, boy, I shouldn't eat that carcass honey. It's pretty bad. Uh, but uh, he didn't have that, did he? But he did have the books of Moses as well as the direct commands of the angel of the Lord that were given to his parents in the previous chapter. He had God-fearing counselors. His parents were people who loved the Lord and wanted to nurture him uh, and, and treat him in the things of the Lord in the proper way. He had a God-given conscience. Romans uh, chapter 2, verse 15 tells us that our conscience bears witness to us. So even if... We don't have the Holy Spirit living within us. Some of you will remember uh, that before you got saved, even your conscience would tell you at times, this isn't right. Now, our conscience can be, Romans chapter 1, seared with a hot iron. Meaning that after a while, you ignore your conscience long enough, 
you know, you're in big trouble if that's the case. Like cauterizing a wound that you can't feel anymore, you can literally cauterize, I believe, your conscience by doing wrong so long. And there are some that God gives up in Romans chapter 1 to a reprobate mind, the Bible says. And you'll see the sin that they get themselves into when that happens. But Samson had a God-given conscience. He also had this. God ordained common sense. You know, I think common sense isn't so common anymore. And there's time we probably don't even need to talk about it anymore because just when you think something is just common sense, you say, well, they don't seem to think so. <laughs> but think about this. Sometimes people say, you know, Pastor, I just don't understand, you know. I, I'll, I'll go to the bars and, you know, I just, look, I, I'm not going to drink. You know, I hang around with the people I used to party, but I'm not going to party like I used to, Pastor. Did you notice, where was Samson when this whole escapade with the lion happened? Go back and look real quick. Where, where was Samson? Audience participation tonight. Where was he? Anybody? He was on his way to the Philistines, but he was going through a place. He was going through somewhere. He was going to Timnath, all right. But this happened in a location. Betova. A vineyard. Hey, Betova. Question number two. What do they grow in vineyards? What do they grow in vineyards? Oh, grapes. That's right. Grapes. What does our man Samson, is he supposed to be avoiding? The product of the grape. He's literally supposed to avoid the product of the grape. God-given common sense would say this. I probably ought not to go through a vineyard. If he had not gone through the vineyard, he wouldn't have seen the lion. If he hadn't seen the lion... He wouldn't have killed it, and he wouldn't have gone back later on and seen the carcass and eaten of the carcass, honey, and violated his vow. If he had just said this, God has told me not to do something, so my God-given common sense says, don't get close to it. And it's amazing to me as believers how often people want to get as close to the line as possible without going over it, as if sin is just this line that needs to be crossed. And as long as you're on this side of the line, it's okay. Listen, anything that is unrighteousness is sin, uh, and there is no line in the middle like the sliding scale where we go back and forth. Listen, th that's what it is. And so we don't need to put ourselves in situations where we're going to get ourselves uh, to a place where we will please ourselves well instead of trying to please the Lord. He had no business being going through a vineyard. You say, well, there's nothing that says he shouldn't have gone through a vineyard. Well, common sense says he shouldn't have. We don't say that the word of the Lord told him not to, but common sense shouldn't have. And there are some things, listen, that for some of you are trigger points. And there are some things that you know that Satan will use for you as a problem. And you maybe will defend yourself at certain times. Say, well, it's not like God says I couldn't do it. Listen, God-given common sense says if this is a problem for you in your life, stay away from it. Because it's going to keep you from the potential. Uh, you're going to ruin that potential that God has for you to do great things for him because you'll end up getting into things that you ought not to. Stay out of the vineyard. Just stay away from it. Your vineyard may be different from Samson's vineyard. Stay away from it. And don't defend it by the fact, well, the Bible doesn't say anything. That's just legalism. One, you don't know what legalism means, if that's what you think. Because oh, legalism talks about adding into salvation. Uh, but secondly, uh, we also realize that, no, it's not legalism. It's one of the weights that we saw from Hebrews chapter 12. I just need to put it aside. For Samson, you know, if God doesn't want me to touch the grape product, I probably should stay away from the grapes. We don't have many, uh, uh, you know, grocery stores here today. In our state, when one of the few things that, you know, I believe honors God here in this state, we don't have many grocery stores that sell alcohol. 
Very few of them. I thank the Lord for that. I'm sure that'll change at some point. In every other state I've lived in, alcohol is a main part of the grocery store. I could walk through an aisle at the grocery store that has beer and wine in it, not even think anything of it. But if that's something for you, you know what you ought to do? Don't walk down that aisle. Stay away from it. Stay away from the store. Well, I'll just go in the pack. You'll get a bag of ice. Go to 7-Eleven instead. You'll do yourself a favor. All right? Stay out of the vineyard because it could end up costing you what God is trying to do and perform in your life. And you'll never realize your full potential for God when your personal pleasures trump the Lord's revealed will. You can blow past the privilege of the guardrails God has given in your life, but the end result is that your potential will go largely untapped by God. But let's address this. You might say tonight, but, but, but pastor, Samson did great things. We're going to read in the next chapter some really great things that Samson did. You just mentioned that he's in Hebrews chapter 11. And that's true. However, verse 4 does show us that that does not mean that that was an approval of his actions by God. Just because God used his actions and just because he did do great things over the 20 years, and he did for the Lord, doesn't mean that he realized his full potential for God. Let me ask you this. If he's not with Delilah in a few chapters, does he have to die as a blind man who's a prisoner of the Philistines? No. Did his life story have to end like that? No. Why did his life story end like that? Personal pleasure trumped the will of God. He looked at Delilah and said this, she pleaseth me well. And that was obviously his trigger point for Satan, women. He, she pleaseth me well. Now, God did use Samson mightily, and I thank the Lord for that. But God used Samson despite his sin and not because of it. It's fair to suppose that God may have used Samson in a far greater way if he had made him, if Samson had made himself a clean vessel. This is what it says in 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself of these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. If you want to be a vessel that the Lord can use, you have to be a clean vessel. And I understand we're not going to be perfect uh, here in this earth. And I understand that, but sometimes we use that as an excuse and then just go ahead and do what our personal pleasures want us to do. But no, God says this, purge yourself of those things and be a sanctified, set-apart vessel that can be filled with the Spirit to be able to be used for God's honor and God's glory. So, we have to think about this tonight. How much different would Samson's life have been if he had said what Jesus said in the garden? Luke twenty-two forty-two. 42. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. May I ask you how different human history would have been if Jesus personal pleasure. And I understand all the theological implications. I, I may be oversimplifying this, but just follow what I'm trying to say overall tonight. That when Jesus says, not thy will, not my will, but thy will be done, that because of that, we are able to be saved. Do you realize what we can do for God when we say, not my will, but thy will be done? Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. A clay not trying to jump off the wheel a clay not fighting the hands of the one who is forming him on the wheel, but a clay who is moldable, able to be used of God. And then as a vessel, 
to do what God has him to say. Have not thy, my will, but thine be done. You know, you're never too old for this prayer. Not my will, but thy will be done. And I also say this, you're never too young for this prayer. Not my will, but thy will be done. You're never too experienced as a Christian. You're never too elder of a Christian to say, well, not my will, but thy will be done. And you're never too young in the faith to say, not my will, but thy will be done. You know, there's a phrase that goes along with this that I think would, would help us tonight. I'm going to give you this and, and we'll be done. It was probably seven or eight years ago that a couple different things were happening at the same time. One, I completed my chaplaincy uh, program through a uh, organization out in the Midwest as I was preparing to be able to help be a chaplain here in Easton. And it looked like for a while that that was really something that was going to happen. I had already done my first ride-along with a sergeant here in town. I'd actually gone um, to uh, the local lockup to uh, be able to look around and, and walk around with one of the wardens for the day, all part of my chaplaincy preparation. And so I had that going on. Also, at the same time, we had just got our church van. And we had bought it, but we hadn't been able to register it properly yet because of the fact that the church was uh, uh, organizing and we had to change our name legally from uh, what we were before to Liberty Baptist Church of Easton with the state. And we really couldn't register the van until we had had that work taken care of. And so there were several months where our church van was literally sitting out in the parking lot without plates, just sitting there waiting to be able to run it. And I remember it was about three in the morning or so, uh, sometime in the winter, several years ago, when I got a call and I looked on my phone, it said Easton Police Department. And immediately I woke up. I was like, oh, this is it. It's time. It's chaplain time. And so I'm trying to find my clothes. I'm getting ready. I'm, I'm going out in the other room and I'm, I'm going to call back. And, and I'm still really not quite with it because like three in the morning for me is like, three in the morning. And so uh, I, I'm not quite with it yet. And so I was like, hello, this is, this is Pastor Rivero. Is, is everything okay? And they said, are you the owner of a green 40 Econoline van? And I said, excuse me? Still not really making the connection. She said, are you the owner of a green Econoline van? And I said, oh, well, well our, our church is. And he said, well, I want you to know tonight that uh, there's a uh, been a crime and your vehicle has been involved uh, in that crime this evening. And so immediately my mind starts going to what, what's going on here? What's this all about? I thought I was going to help someone with a crime and I'm the victim of a crime. Well, that, that took a turn <laughs> immediately. Well, it ended up that because that van had sat up there for so long, the battery was dead. Well, that's not a problem because the van wasn't going anywhere. Someone at three in the morning was trying to uh, take the van, steal it, pull it away. So they're trying to hotwire it and they didn't realize that the battery was dead. Now, I'll be honest with you, they were able to hotwire it. I probably would have given them a medal. I mean, that would have been incredible if they had had the ability to be able to hotwire this van. But uh, uh, so anyway, a cruiser pulls up and, you know, here's a guy trying to hotwire a van with no plates. And he says, uh, sir, is, is everything all right? He goes, oh, no, this is my van. Uh, I'm just trying to get it started. And he, he says, well, why doesn't your van have any plates? And his only answer was to drop everything and run. And so he ran about three or four blocks uh, to the uh, south, probably maybe stopped by uh, Ralph and Tom's, who knows, uh, but going that direction, the police picked him up, they caught him, uh, and there was no problem. But they, the police called me to be able uh, to inform me that the church was the victim of a crime. They had trouble tracking me down because it was still registered to the previous owner. They called the previous owner at three in the morning, who, by the way, wasn't very appreciative of it, who gave him my number and said, I don't even own it anymore, call this guy. So I get the phone call. Anyway, I was still kind of psyched up 
at being able to, to help as a chaplain. And I'm still kind of confused. And it's still three in the morning. And so he explains all this to me. And, and he says, all right, well, you know, you know, Pastor, in the morning, you know, you just come down to the station. We'll, we'll work everything out. The van should be fine, but we do just need to uh, get a statement from you about the van and work some details out. And I don't know what it, what it was about being up, with all this going on, all this is swirling in my mind. I'm still so tired. And immediately, you know, I, I, I mentioned to him that I, you know, I thought, you know, I, I would serve at a police chaplain, all these things. And I said something that I, th I feel like I've seen in movies and television before. But I, I said, I said, this is what I said. I, I said, well, thank you. I said, I serve at the pleasure of the Easton Police Department. And then I hung up. And I thought, that's one of the weirdest things that's ever come out of my mouth in my life. I serve at the pleasure of the Easton Police Department. But that's like a phrase that people use in police or in politics, especially if you're talking about a, uh, a cabinet the cabinet serves at the pleasure of the president. Uh, technically, in a police department, you serve at the pleasure of the chief. And that means that if chief says do or don't or come or go, that's what you do. It's really not up to you. You do what they say because you serve at their pleasure. If the president says, I want you to sign this bill or uh, sign this treaty or not, or I want you to draw up this, uh, this uh, legislation or not, Look, it's not up to you. You serve his play. You don't want to do it. That's fine. He's just going to fire you. And by the way, history has borne that out. That's the way it works. But I love that phrase. Maybe a little too much, apparently, from that night. I serve at the pleasure of. Do you realize we serve at the pleasure of the Lord Jesus Christ? We ought to realize that. But I feel like a lot of Christians don't. We oftentimes serve at the pleasure of our pleasure. Lord, I serve at the pleasure of my pleasure. Say, well, that's taken a little too far. She pleaseth me well. I serve at the pleasure of my pleasure. Do you realize that I believe God derives great pleasure from our obedience, knowing that we're able to reach souls for Christ, knowing that we're able to do the things God calls us to do, that we literally are to serve at the pleasure of the Lord. And that means if he wants us here, we're here. If he wants us to go, we go. If he says, come, we come. If he says, go, we go. If he says, talk, we talk. If he says, hold your mouth, we hold our mouth. We serve at his pleasure. But I'm afraid far too many Christians serve at the pleasure of pleasure. And because of that, what ends up happening is not much ends up happening. There's wheat that doesn't get taken in. Uh, there's fruit that doesn't get plucked. There's water at our feet that doesn't get drawn up. That all of these things that God has potential for us to do... And all these things that God has uh, gifted us to be able to do, we don't end up doing. And because of that, people are spiritual busts. Now, I would never look at a person and say, you're a spiritual bust. Because let's be honest, there have been times in all of our lives that that could be labeled against us. I have no desire to look at someone and say that. That's for God to decide in God alone. But I do have to wonder at the judgment seat of Christ for some who are saved, who think they're getting gold and silver and precious stones, and they think they're some of God's choicest servants. I wonder if God will look at them and say, sure, you acted with two talents, but I gave you 10. You wasted eight. What did you do with those eight? Give account for them. You say, God won't ask for account. He asked for the account of the one from the man who took it and buried it in the earth. And he said this, you didn't do right with it. Give it to the other one. I'm going to uh, deal with you separately because you didn't trust me to be able to get the returns on the investment of what I gave you with the one. So tonight, do we serve at the pleasure of pleasure or do we serve at the pleasure of our Savior. Sometimes we're too busy 
skipping around the vineyards. We're too busy looking at what we want to look at and doing what we want to do. And then when God asks us to do something or the church asks us to do something or the pastor asks us to do something, it's almost as if someone's asked you to construct the Hoover Dam by yourself, brick by brick. When we realize what was asked of Jesus Christ by the Father was to go and be born to a virgin, to live for 33 years, to die in a cruel cross, to know that he would go undergo suffering that no human being has ever suffered, and to undergo suffering, not just physically, but spiritually, that no one's ever gone through, that literally the connection, I believe, between father and son for several hours were severed there because of the sinfulness that was brought upon Jesus Christ, which is why he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The only time in the word of God he doesn't call him father. And we look at those great sacrifices that were made, but yet it was for the joy that was set before him, Hebrews chapter 12. He says, not my will, but thy will be done. But for God's children, it's about my pleasure, what I want. We've got it backwards, friend. And until we get it right, this nation won't see revival. Churches won't see revival. Families won't see revival. I'm not saying I've got it all figured out. I don't, but I want to do better. I want to move forward. And doing that means my personal pleasures cannot trump God's revealed will and God's revealed word in my life. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the pulpit of Liberty Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, or if there's any way we can serve you, please let us know by contacting us at info at mylibertybaptist.org, or you can visit us this Sunday at 800 Washington Street in Easton, Massachusetts. May the Lord bless you as you grow in His Word.